We have chapter 3 of Machen, which is God and man. Okay. And so let's just take a quick moment and review kind of what we're doing, particularly for any visitors that are not up to speed and the rest of us that aren't up to speed either. Uh, so we're, <coughs> we're looking at a book where uh, 100 years ago, uh, a Christian scholar, a faithful Christian scholar, recognized in the church that there's a movement going on. There are, there are a number of people within the church, and even in the Presbyterian church, that were holding to essentially something entirely different from Christianity, but under the guise of Christianity, using the words of Christianity, using the liturgies of Christianity, but not having the same meaning or teaching at all of Christianity as far as doctrine goes, or even as far as oftentimes ethics and how the Christian life is supposed to be lived, kind of moved off that direction as well. And so he, he took that first chapter and kind of gave an introduction. In the second chapter, he talked about doctrine itself, right? kind of the nature of doctrine and uh, that Christianity is helplessly doctrinaire. Right? And he does that in this chapter as well, even talking about our relationships, which is interesting, our friendships with one another are based or rooted in doctrine. What we know and what we can articulate about each other and the things we appreciate about each other and so on, um, we'll get there. But the, the doctrine is supremely important to Christianity. And uh, the most fundamental doctrines we have are doctrines of God and man. Who's God? What kind of, what kind of being is God? And what are people? What are we? Uh, and it reminds me for that point as we begin we can open it, it of John Calvin's opening lines, or at least opening section of the Institutes. He says that all of our knowledge is comprised of knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. That's what we have. Uh, that's the extent and nature of knowledge of these two points, and I think Machen rightly picks that up here. Let me get the notes in front of me here. Okay, so you have notes in front of you. I can see some of your, your notes. Good. So before, well, let's look at the page 47, the question that I'm asking there, and then we'll pick up Schleiermacher on the way in. So the second paragraph on page 47, we'll read it out loud here, and we can uh, think about it. Would you make sure to grab the tripod in the back of the van, Miley? Okay, so he's talking about liberals and being opposed, diametrically opposed to Christianity. It is opposed to Christianity in the first place in its conception of God. But at this point, we are met with a particular insistent, particularly insistent form of that objection to doctrinal matters which has uh, already been considered. It is unnecessary, we are told, to have a conception of God. Theology, or the knowledge of God, it is said, is the death of religion. We should seek not to know God, but we should merely feel his presence. Okay, now, I don't know if, again, this is on a general level as far as knowledge of God, but kind of dials in specifically to our knowledge of God and our doctrine of God, which is called theology. The theology proper is, you know, theology is, kind of covers everything in the whole wide world, uh, as far as a, a general word. So it's a theological or biblical view of this or that. But we, when we talk about theology proper, we're focusing in on the doctrine of God. And there's a notion that he's dealing with that say, listen, you, we don't need to talk about God. We don't have to have a doctrine of God and, and, and have some kind of knowledge of him, the way we might have knowledge of the way to grow green grass or with the way we might have knowledge of philosophical matters, or the way we might have knowledge of any, any, any sort of things. We don't have that of God. Rather, it's a matter of feeling. Maybe a feeling of dependence, or maybe a feeling of awe and amazement at God, but that's where real religious uh, action is, not in 
knowledge. So I put a note there, and I'll just read this one on Schleiermacher. He's not anyone you're going to read. He's not anyone I've read, really, when it comes down to it. I haven't spent much time reading Schleiermacher, uh, because you kind of don't have to in the sense that his ideas just kind of spread out rapidly, and you find them everywhere. Uh, so there's, there's that aspect of Friedrich Schleiermacher's work. You can see his dates there, 1768 to 1834, so clearly a century before Machen even, as far as, as, far as Schleiermacher goes often referred to as the father of theological liberalism. Well, that's what we're kind of looking at, theological liberalism, comparing that theological liberalism to historic Christianity, kind of point by point, starting here with, with the doctrine of God specifically. He emphasized religious experience and feelings of dependence and awe, even as he disparaged propositional truth regarding the supernatural. Okay, so he's saying these, these feelings we have around God, uh, toward him, dependence upon him, being lost in the, uh, uh, in the, in the reality that is God and kind of having emotional experiences and so on. That's, that's the kind of stuff religion's made of, not doctrine, not teaching, not knowledge. And part of that is what comes next in this little blurb. Schleiermacher was influenced, read, limited, his thoughts limited, by Immanuel Kant, a great, great thinker of the, well, you can see he died in 1804. He's influenced by, by Kant's skepticism regarding the possibility of human knowledge of what he called the noumenal realm or the supernatural or anything beyond sensory input, right? What we can, what we can see, touch, you know, touch, taste, and so on, we can measure that, we can figure that stuff out, we can operate in, in this realm. But when it comes to what Kant called the noumenal realm, the spiritual beyond the physical, we have no hope of getting there. We can't say it doesn't exist. In fact, Kant wants to say it does exist, and he kind of argues for it in, a moral, uh, in moral ways. But, but his point is, we can't get there from here. We don't get up to heaven from down here. And in a certain sense, I'm sympathetic. So, yeah, yeah, we don't. We don't extend ourselves into the heavens and into eternity to figure it out. But heaven can extend itself into earthly realities and help us figure that out, right? And that's, I think that issue of revelation is something that Kant... Missed, and that, um, and you know, I don't think Kant's going to be understood as a very good Christian. Again, I haven't read much Kant. No one does because he's like impossible to read. Um, but you know, you philosophy guys can can dig into him. Anyway, but he has a skepticism about about spiritual things and our ability to know them that really influences Schleiermacher. And and Schleiermacher says, well, that's fine. We don't need that knowledge anyway because. Really, what we're doing is feeling God, right? He's interacting with us, and we're having experience, and it really is rooted more in our emotions than in our mind. Okay, so that's what Schleiermacher is going to say. And, and um, anyway, I'll kind of open it up at that point for your thoughts, or then, and then how, how, how Machen answers that, how Machen responds to that. But what are your kind of thoughts on that? Imagine it's something you've heard before. Something along those lines. And, hey, listen, it doesn't really matter what we think about God. It only really matters what we feel about God or our experience with Him or something along those lines. Yeah, Bill? Yes, yeah, so uh, Well, he, de- he denies that you can know truth. He, he admits it. He's denying truth. For certain. Saying that you can't know truth, that there is no. He set, set himself as the truth, Kant and Schleiermacher and the rest of them, Nietzsche. Hmm. But they. They can't explain where where did all that is come to be? How did it get here? Absolutely not. There's definitely, they have their 
numenodal or whatever word that was that, that he used. They use all these weird words that, well, I have to go to college to understand just that one word alone and how you're using it. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. You're not using norm, uh, somewhat normal communication that the average person can understand. Yeah, and that's in some sense that's understandable because when it gets down to it, every every discipline has a jargon, has some technical language, and philosophy is no different. In fact, it's often generated to keep you out. Same, same with uh, not welcome. Same with Roman Catholicism and all that Latinized edicts and things that they make nobody can understand. Yeah. Leash, are you on this? All right, yeah, there. Yeah, so there's anyway. Not that I didn't want to get into the philosophy any more than to say there's a background here that will help you make, help it make sense and maybe helps make sense of plenty of the people that are Christians that you run into that kind of talk similarly and kind of think similarly about the doctrine of God and our, our notion of God at all versus our feelings, you know, in, in regard to it. So, yeah, Kim. Yeah, it's just it's interesting as you said, whatever that guy, Schleier. Whatever, Schleiermacher? Yeah, yeah. He, he, the father of liberalism, is that, that's in the church, correct? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, you can see even going... He was already influenced, it seems like, by like the philosophy of maybe Rousseau, or uh, as far as turning, finding truth inward, right? Absolutely, Instead right. Instead of yeah, so he's already like swimming in this <laughs> this realm of philosophy where truth is found inward, even if he's not saying it's true. Right. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like I think it's the death of truth at a certain point, right? There's this that's kind of what you're saying. There's there truth is no more. God is dead. And we're kind of left with the subjective world and, and Nietzsche and things like that, too. Sorry. But now we've come, like now, we've come to bring that full circle here. That's what so much of our culture is saying, is that it is. It's truth is found inward, right? It's my truth. Oh, yeah. And that, you know, so it's like, yeah. back here they might have been not calling it truth, but now we've come to that point where yeah. you know, truth is found inward. Yeah. You know, I feel like this, so this is true. Yeah, so that like kind of extreme subjectivity is all we're left with. And no one's doubted the subjective reality of truth. We have to receive it and live in it. But that there is a, that there is truth. God is truth. And he's built a world that encompasses truth and communicates truth to us. Uh, all of this, of course, is kind of lost. Though we could still have a, a basis for truth when it comes down to physics or when it comes down to other things that are, that are less mysterious to us, we think. Um, but, yeah, the subjectivity is definitely uh, the, the way of escape, it seems, and all the way into just my own little make-believe world. Enforce it on you. Make you call me by pronouns. And did you have some? And then, yeah. And interestingly, this this is, and he mentions it in this chapter after World War One. Right? He talks about sin a little later and says, well, maybe there's an issue here with the war, which I thought was kind of fun to sort through and think, oh, what's going on there, you know, and uh, the demagoguery and so on that goes on. But um, so what's what's his answer? What does Machen say to this kind of like 
yeah, hey, it's not really about the head. It's about the heart in that sense. It's about our feelings instead of our thinking about God. What's his response there on that page and the next? We don't have any basis for morality if it's all about feelings. Yeah, there's nothing particularly moral or immoral about just a feeling as such. Right? So there's... So that makes ethical realities, kind of cuts them out from the knees. Um, he gives the, the kind of fun and wonderful example of the, the doctrinaire basis um, for human friendships. Right? The, he says what makes, a, the, what makes affection for a human friend, for example, such an ennobling thing is the knowledge which we possess of the character of our friend. Human affection, apparently so simple, is really just bristling with dogma. Right, that you know, that we we enjoy one another and we enjoy the friendships that we have because we know each other. Yeah, you know, we get to know the, our, each other's thoughts and actions and each other as people. And he's like, well, if it's that way with among men, how much more with the infinite personality of God to to know Him? And again, not because we can reach up and grab it, right? Uh, but because God can reveal it. God can bring it down to us. We can't go up and get it. Kind of sidestepping and moving past the. Objection of Kant, and I remember listening to R.C. Sproul lecture through, you know, history of, history of philosophy, and being hung up on Kant and, and others too, just just like this. Say, well, they got these arguments that are powerful and difficult, but I know they're not true. So how do I overcome power, you know these these arguments when I know they're untrue? And that's kind of the philosopher's situation. I'm no philosopher, so I'm not worried too much about it, but others are, and God bless them, let them go. So long as we can say, yeah, God's word is truth. And all men are liars, Kant included, and whoever else we're talking about, even Machen, and stick with the word of God as the truth. Hey, your, yes. Your video. Oh, sorry. I noticed, should have noticed the snowman there. It's a, it's a sign that I haven't done it right. There's a snowman. Okay, so pages 49 and 50, unless there's any questions on that kind of little running introduction there. So... He brings up this practical knowledge of God, and it's kind of juxtaposed to a theoretical knowledge of God, uh, as they call. So, what, what would like a theoretical knowledge of God be? What's that kind of terminology indicating? So, knowledge of God in theory, theoretical, right, would be just rational, just knowing things of God, knowing God, knowing things about Him. Uh, as opposed to what we often hear, and it's, it's funny to hear to get the word practical here, because we have whole departments of practical theology in seminaries, uh, which may or may not be the best way to do it, but practical theology is just applied theology. What it is to live this out, what it is to live it out in the church, very much what we're doing in Romans chapter 12. Uh, let love be genuine is, a, is practical theology. It's like you've been loved in Christ, now here's how you love. It's, it's theology in action. It's theology for doing Right, that's the practical part of it. But that's not what's being said here. Right, he's using these words a little, a little differently. And theology is, by most Reformed theologians for sure, have been talked about as both theoretical and practical. Right, we, we need to know God, and we need to be able to know in such a way that we can live for God. So those come together. They're not one or the other. Um, in this sense, I think it's, it's just juxtaposing them in order to get rid of one and keep the other. So then, here's the, as far as the question goes, what was going on under the label practical knowledge of God? You guys see that? Most of on page 49. You guys didn't do your reading. <laughs> yeah. 
So it's, it's, it's kind of following along, yeah, with what we were just talking about. Go ahead, Darlene. Well, it's about the middle of that page. It's what is frequently meant by a practical knowledge of God. In modern parlance, it's not a theoretical knowledge of God. It's a practical knowledge of God. And that's what it's Our knowledge of God isn't really knowledge of anything at all. We don't have that knowledge. Um, so that whole theoretical thing is like, yeah, we don't have it done. As opposed to a practical Christianity that is rooted in knowledge of God, right? which would be kind of more historic Christianity. Um, say we know God, he's revealed himself, and therefore he calls us to obedience. He calls us to conformity. He calls us to be conformed to the image of, of Christ. So this is really knowledge that's no knowledge at all. And can you imagine chasing your tail on that? Uh, you know, knowledge that isn't knowledge. Knowledge that's basically worse, worthless and wasted. Well, that's, that's the kind of modernist understanding of Christian theology. It's wasted time. All your distinctions about God and whatever else, it's all, it's all just wasted time. Uh, we rather aim at something more practical or more emotional, as it turns out, than actual knowledge of God. So... What uh, what do the scriptures principally teach? That's the question from Westminster Chapter Number Three. There, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. A personal relationship with God. We have the ability to know Him, know His, his qualities and attributes, and we have a personal relationship. Sure. Even being made in His very image to uh, to relate to Him. Yeah. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's the catechism answer. Uh, what does scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God. There's your theoretical knowledge of God. What, what we're supposed to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. There's a practical part. Right? So even from that very simple statement in Westminster you know, Catechism number three, short catechism, we get a theoretical, practical understanding of revelation of what the Bible actually is and what it gives us. Knowledge of God and knowledge of how to do his will, of what he calls us. To do so that's that's pretty important and kind of again fundamental to Christianity is this whole revelation. The next chapter is the Bible. He does a good job there too. Um, but you know, what's God given us in the Scripture except knowledge of Himself and given us the capacity to receive that knowledge and not just capacity. I think as humans with rationality and and those sorts of things that we share, but but an added boost, as it were, by the Holy Spirit to the Christian heart to receive the things of God, to receive the Scripture, to receive knowledge beyond probably what we're capable of mentally. Right? The, we're interacting with the Almighty. We're interacting with God himself. Uh, so we can talk about that. We can talk faithfully about that because God has spoken faithfully about himself. Um, but yeah, we are overwhelmed by all that, of course. You know, God's God. We're just creatures. Yeah, Kim? And the two, it's important that it's a real historical person. I mean, in Jesus, right? This is some shard of the divine out there. Whatever. I mean, it's a person that he right. touched. You know, and, I mean, you can believe whether he was resurrected or not, but this is an actual, you know, person who we believe still living and, and breathing. So it's not just this, you know, yeah. idea. It's, it's rooted in just history, too. That's good. In fact, even that is like a little bump. It's helpful because I had a note in here at some point where he's, he does, you know, he's, he's talking about kind of our relationship with God, but the whole thing's in Christ. The whole thing's in the mediator. Um, and that's that's the kind of important thing for us to continually have in mind that it's through Christ God's made Himself known. Of course, there's the prophets and everything else, and men spoke in diverse ways in times past. But in these latter days, He's spoken to us in His Son and so on. And then His Son and the apostles. That's another part that we have kind of coming up here with God and man and the Bible. 
Okay, so let's... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, they, they would love that. The liberals would love that text because it's all do, do, do. Right? It's not no, no, no. <laughs> K-N-O-W, no. Um, it's, it's do, right? So, that, that, that say, hey, what's, what's God require you? Just settle down and be humble and do your thing. That was yeah. the ESV or something. Yeah. You know, I don't know what the... I'd have to look at my... I don't like a 6-8. What, what did you just say? Yeah, I know the same. I don't, I don't know what I like. But I don't know that the meaning of the word do is what you're saying. Yeah, maybe not. But I, I think that's the kind of text they'd like. Oh, sure. Um, thinking well, of the... Um, context. The one of um, the end of Ecclesiastes as well. Uh, it's all been looked at. Everything's been done. Fear God. Keep His commandments. Um, there's another one that's like, you know, dialed in that way. Uh, and then, of course, the breadth of fearing God is knowing Him and knowing we're fearing and responding appropriately and so on. Um, so the, the mainstay here, I think, of the chapter and maybe the mainstay of liberal or modernist theology is what kind of two-part slogan? Here's something coming from Zoom. So the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Right? That's this kind of slogan that's just brought up all the time through liberal. That's, that's, and even to the point of like, hey, listen, you know, whatever. You, you can imagine it going all sorts of different ways from every religion basically teaches the same thing, which is, you know, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Maybe they say that. But at the very least they say what the scriptures teach, right? What, the, what, what Christianity really is, is this doctrine of the fatherhood of God, universal, God's the father of all, and uh, and the brotherhood of man, and then the ethical realities to kind of come out of that. What is it to be God to be the father, and what is it for men, women, children to be brothers, right, or sisters, and what the to be family, right? Hey, it's all family. So that's that's really what's you know. And is it hard to sell that? I think it's pretty easy to sell that. Um, people say, yeah, their their ears, you know, they want to get them tickled how they like, and that's easy. God's benevolent, and he gives, and we're supposed to get along down here in the Rodney King theology. Can't we always get along? And, like, that's kind of it, right? There's very little knowledge of God at all. Not that it would matter. But he is our father, and fathers give good gifts, not snakes, but eggs and such. Um, and, and so they can appeal to some teachings in Jesus and some teachings in the New Testament, but they certainly can't appeal to much. And have to leave out a great deal of Jesus' teaching and leave out a great deal of the New Testament in order even to come to this, this notion of the fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man as if that's the kernel, right? As if that's the real thing of Christianity. All this other stuff's kind of fluff uh, and these get kind of shaved off and moved off and get to the, get the meat, right? So, yeah. So, so why, why do you think that it's more easy to sell dead people that concept of the fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man, versus Jesus died for your sins, you are a sinner, repent and be baptized. What, what's the difference? Well, because... Dead people are dead, aren't they? Yeah, and they love their wives. But they don't love the truth. Well, they don't, they don't even know what the truth is. But they don't know it, and they hate it. Right. <laughs> it's kind of like God. God doesn't exist, and I hate him. Okay, okay well, um, I'm not sure how that works, but that's, that is what comes out, right? And the same thing is true. Like when it comes to the truth of who Jesus is, especially when it's stuck in big churches with lots of money and you know all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like yeah, we can we can talk Christianly and say Christian things and say hey, this is what the Bible really teaches. When anyone who's bothered to examine the Bible 
or read what Jesus taught, would say, oh, well, that doesn't even get there. We're not even, we're, we're hardly moving, <laughs> right? If all we have is the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. That's, that's hardly the beginning into this thing, let alone the lion's share of what it's supposed to be. And that's kind of a, anyway, he has some comment here. He's like, I can't, I can't believe educated people or intelligent people actually say this stuff and think it. Because all they have to do is examine briefly the historic Christian record or the New Testament and say, oh, this isn't it at all. That's not it. There's something else different. You're going. Uh, just to address Bill's question, it's like, because then they don't have to address your sin. Sure. You know, we don't want to admit we're sinners. We don't want to address our sins. We don't want to have to. We're, we don't want to be humble. We don't want to have our lives change um, and give up that control of our lives. So it's easier to say, well, God loves everybody because, you know, he's the father of all. And, and leave it at that. Yeah. Which, which, even by that, just simply undercuts the gospel. I mean, it's not even like it's a step in the right direction at that point. Uh, it's kind of a misstep, because God loves us where? Where is the love of God? I would ask where, and where alone is the redemptive love of God? It's in Christ. That's where salvation is. That's where the love of God is. God loved the world in this way that he sent his Son. Right, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16, baby. Uh, well, there you go. That's, that's a lot closer than the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. John 3.16 is enough to like kind of blow away the smoke and say, well, hang on, I can see what's going on here, and it's, you're selling us a false bill of goods. Right, you're selling us something that isn't Christianity but sounds christian kind of, to untrained ears, really. Yeah, darling. And there's, and there's plenty to be had there, I think, in a, you know, some good theological thinking. Can, we can learn a lot from that common grace and that, that you know, anyway, the, the, the commonness of God to humanity and to all creation. There's stuff to be learned there, right? That's true. But it's not anywhere near enough truth. And if that's all you say, it's deceptively articulated truth, right? It's truth that's engineered to deceive, to hide the truth from you by giving you partial truth. Yeah, yeah. If there's no, if there's no justice, really. Then love is pretty thin, right? And everything else, right, kind of falls apart. So, yes, the uh, you'll you'll sometimes hear still the universal fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man. Not so much. Mostly, I read it and it kind of it tails back to this this time or a little before or a little after. But you'll you you'll, you might run into that. But recognize the technique. Make sure you have the technique of like, hey, here's a truth from the Bible. And don't worry about all the rest of this stuff from the Bible. That's the technique mm-hmm. right here. Here's, here's a partial truth of the Bible, and we're going to maximize that, and we're going to minimize or ignore all sorts of other things that the Bible teaches. 
Um, and we might say, well, we don't need Paul, or we don't need those apostles, uh, particularly Paul, like gets a beating, right? Um, we, don't, we don't need him. We just need Jesus. Jesus is, you know, what he said, that's the true Christian reality. Paul's this usurper of Christianity and those sorts of, those sorts of things. And there's plenty of that going on in his time that he's fighting against on an academic level, right, that he's working with. Um, but you can't even do that. You can't even have the words of Jesus and, and come up with the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And that's like the central heart of Christianity. It's like, no, how about his messianic reality? How about him coming to die for sinners and such, like he said? So, yeah. We're all saying that is that there's a necessity to recognize uh, not only is Satan an angel of light, he's the counterfeit. There's the counterfeit gospel. There's what Machen's addressing, liberalism and all that. And you, if I gave you a dollar bill and a counterfeit one, without ever knowing enough what one was, you wouldn't know the difference between one and the other. Sure. But knowledge, the knowledge of God, begin, uh, fear the how it goes in Proverbs, but we, we, we need to know. We need to study to show ourselves improvement. Yeah. Talking about, you're not going to know the diff- You're not going to know that false Joel Osteen stuff. You know, if you don't know what the truth is, if you, if you haven't studied the scriptures. That's and that kind of comes down to just that being able to study the scriptures and know what God has revealed, and to do that, I think, in light of the historic creeds and things like that, that help us not lose track as well. So those, those all kind of take their place in the middle of all of it is the scripture. But the, uh, let's finish this section here and then get to the anthropology. Um, so I asked the question in the notes there from pages uh, 54, 55. What is the, quote, awful transcendence, end quote, of God, and how does that compare with process or pantheism, as he lays out? So what does he mean by awful? What is transcendence? I mean, it's a good, you know, two-bit word. Um, and maybe you hear it in context, you're like, yeah, I think I get it, but someone this is what we're talking about. Someone asks you to define it, like, nope, <laughs> not giving definitions, but I kind of get it if I hear it in a, in a sentence. Or in, so what is the transcendence of God? It's often, it's often juxtaposed to imminence. And, uh, with, and imminent is weird because there are like three or four different spellings of words that sound similar and they all mean different things. It's crazy. Um, but imminence, which I think is I-M-M, imminence, uh, is the closeness of God. He's imminent. He's in... Uh, he's involved in the created world and in our lives. He's close to us. It's kind of the opposite or the, the going the other direction of what his transcendence is. When you say someone transcends, Michael Jordan transcends the, like, you know, the regular uh, abilities of basketball players. What's that mean? Yeah, it's, he's like rocket ship over it, beyond it, right? That's the idea of the awful, and the awful transcendence of God's a wonderful uh, description of it. Um, that it's awe-inspiring and, and horrifying, the actual absoluteness and otherness of God. Right? That's, that's, that's a hard thing for us to begin to deal with, though that's always there. So God is himself. God is who God is. I am who I am. And he's not like us in a lot of ways, and that's scary and awful. Uh, though we're made in his image, and so there are ways in which we are like him as well. So the transcendence of God is the absolute otherness of God, as opposed to process or pantheism. What is pantheism? In, in us, in everything? Or? So it, it, it didn't help either. There's pantheism and panentheism. Yeah. And um, pantheism, did you have one back there, Dev? Well, just, well, okay. the divine spark, you hear people say that, the divine spark. Okay. 
that's okay, that's something like that. Pan- pantheism itself is identifying creation as God. Right? Uh, all of it, pan, everything, is God. God's everything, everything's God. You say, well, is God apart from everything, or is he kind of in everything? And once you get to Kant, and once you get into this kind of modern stuff, um, you get the development, the evolution of things where God himself, these are called process theologians that come after Machen, I think, uh, but they certainly have the roots here, where God himself is, he's discovering himself as history moves along. He's so, he's so identified with history and, and uh, created reality that um, he, he doesn't even know the end from the beginning. He's figured out along with us. He's just better at it all than we are. And you get kind of open, open theism or open theology, openness. China follows the same track that way. It's uh, not I am, it's I'm becoming. Sure, yeah, I am becoming. I am becoming. And then panentheism is a little closer maybe to uh, everything has God in it. Every, every person has a spark of divinity or even, you know, kind of the animism of all the plants have a divine spark and things like this. Well, I mean, Christian, how, how do the plants grow? By the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, right? So we recognize that God's power in, in, in reality is shot through all of this, but we maintain that God isn't this. God has created this. And we have this, what we call a creator-creature distinction. And if you ever lose that distinction, you've lost your Christianity. That God isn't the creation, and the creation isn't God. Even though God is near to it, and God fills heaven and earth, and all kinds of things like that. We can talk about his closeness and imminency, but the transcendence is something that Christianity is always held to, that God is and not creation. Pantheism says creation is God. Right? So Christianity is not pantheistic. And there are plenty of religions that are pantheistic, but Christianity is not one of them. In the process, one takes it even farther, up into God kind of discovering himself and that sort of thing. So you say, this is all not Christianity. Historic Christianity understands the transcendence of God, the absolute otherness of God, that he alone is the absolute creator, and we are all creatures. Everything, everything else is a creature, is, is created by God. So that's an important one for us to kind of keep in mind. We're running short on anthropology time here. So we can probably summarize pretty quickly by saying, what was the, what's the main issue in this well, you know, last handful of pages of the chapter with anthropology, our doctrine of man, anthropos means man, anthropology is our study of man, what's, what's the major deficiency of liberalism or modernism as opposed to historic Christianity when it comes to the doctrine of man, anthropology? Objection of original sin? Yeah, or, or just sin altogether, probably, right? Um, the, there's, there really is no doctrine of sin amidst the liberals, amidst the, that's not the issue, which kind of gets back to Ed's response to you here, too, where it seems like liberalism, in its, in its kind of, in its heart, is trying to avoid the problem of sin by ignoring it, by saying it ain't so, right? Or, or the God winks at it, he sent Jesus, or whatever, you know, some kind of thing where it's, it's just not a big deal where that's kind of front and center in the gospel ministry is we're sinners, we're fallen, we're, we're wicked, and we're rebellious before a holy God who is just, and that's a problem for us. And so therefore, to fix the problem, to redeem us, he sent his son, his perfect son, to redeem us by his death and resurrection. Okay, well, there's a whole messianic you know, action reality of what Jesus came to do with the mission God sent him on, not just to like tell eternal truths that we can all sit there and trip out and think about, uh, but rather to redeem us, to actually take us out of the, 
domain of death and bring us into, in himself, in his own broken body and shed blood, into relationship with God and so on. So the sin is really the issue that the liberals want to sidestep. And so I want to ask us, what are our tendencies, as we close up, to want to sidestep the same issue? Not maybe generally speaking, you know, get rid of the doctrine of sin, but more specific to, our, to ourselves, right? Uh, ignoring our own sins or ignoring the sins of the ones that are kind of close to us as a Reformed Presbyterian, you know, church or in our own families or individually and saying, yeah, I can see the sin of those guys out there, a bunch of, you know, woke folks talking, you know, not just entirely neglecting what the Bible says on woke issues, right? They're driven by their own um, emotion and ethics, but not being faithful. Sure, that's, that's easy enough to see, but it's harder to see when it's our own, right? Because we not only play games and lie to ourselves, but we just can't see things that are close to us. So um, sins are always an issue, right? Sin is always the issue, and um, we need to have more preaching. of that. That's kind of his remedy here is, well, we need to preach the law, um, and he had mentioned that the war things like, yeah, it's easy to get into a, a war where it's like you have enemies out there and all your, like, moral, I don't know, all, all your moral judgments upon them. They're the wicked ones. They're the bad guys out there, and we need to go get them. And since they're bad and wicked, we don't really need to think about our own wickedness because we have a target for that over there. Maybe there's a bit of that that goes on in a war and things like that. But there are lots of ways in which we trick ourselves not to look at our own sin, not to account for it before God and, and repent and or seek grace to repent all those things yeah well it's really easy to compare ourselves to the people around us who always find somebody worse off you know worse than I am kind of thing mm-hmm. and so and that's a, a human nature for us to do that you bet mm-hmm. yeah. I think forgetting that we are in war though too it might not be the kind of war you're talking about but we are in a spiritual war and just like making light of that too and not realizing that it's a daily war Yeah, okay. I like that. And I'll pick it up there and end. With the daily war we're in, who in the war is following our captain, the Lord Jesus. Right? The author and perfecter of our, our faith, the one who's brought us into relationship with God, and the one who keeps us. Right? By his power. And says, no one's able to take you out of my hand or my father's hand. Right? This is, it's all about following our king and savior, the Lord Jesus, and making war. Making war on our own sin. And so there's the preaching of the law, there's the, the, our, uh, the conformity to the law in our own lives, he brings up, as far as a Christian witness, you know, really being faithful to do what God says to do. That has its own impact on other people who are trying to ignore that. Um, but finally, he says, this is an issue of the Holy Spirit. God has to bring conviction of sin, and that he is holy and transcendent and awesome and awful, and that our sins are, uh, would be ever before him if it weren't for the mediator, the one who came, Messiah. So there's this kind of, again, to, to bring it together and end, liberalism in his day, and I think it's, it's children in our, in our day, forget the transcendence of God, immanentize them, kind of make them part of our daily lives, but don't make them holy and awesome and awful, and, uh, and then also at the same time minimize our own sin. Right? Well, those are the two things that really come together, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, that make the whole biblical message ring. Right? That God's going to overcome this problem, not by being a general father to all and having all be general brothers, but by sending his son so that we could be sons of God in him. Right? It's in Christ Jesus that we are sons of God and daughters of God, and uh, our redemption's there. So with that, let's close in prayer and 